Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. Here at the USCCB, we have been working um, for the past several months across several committees to address problems with the Equality Act. We discussed some of those problems on our last episode of the First Freedom Podcast with uh, Robert Vega and Lauren McCormick. Certainly, we're concerned about religious liberty and the burdens that the act would place on the church. But religious freedom is not the only problem, and perhaps it's not even the main problem. A point that we have tried to make is that the act, the Equality Act, would force on all Americans uh, a false and ultimately destructive understanding of the human person. So to help us unpack some of these ideas about gender and sexuality that are behind the Equality Act, uh, we are happy to have here Margaret Harper McCarthy and Michael Hamby. Dr. McCarthy is Associate Professor of Theological Anthropology, and Dr. Hamby is Associate Professor of Religion and Philosophy of Science, both at the John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family. Uh, Dr. McCarthy and Dr. Hamby, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Yes, thank you for having us. So one of the driving forces behind the Equality Act is this idea that there is a radical distinction between gender and sex. Dr. McCarthy, why don't you start us off? I think many people are not going to be familiar with this idea. Um, so just tell us what is it and where did this idea come from? Well, the term gender is now um, proposed as something other than sex. Now the terms sex and gender are bifurcated. This appeared formally in the 1950s amongst psychiatrists and psychologists, most notably John Money, the New Zealand psychologist and sexologist who developed the sex change operation at Johns Hopkins beginning in 1966 at the gender identity clinic he established. Uh, so that was in the 50s when he started speaking about gender as something other than sex. Prior to that, the term gender was for the most part synonymous with the term sex, as you can see in the most famous dictionary, the OED. It, it meant, it denoted the dimorphism in animals, that they are male and female for the purpose of sexual union and generation. Uh, as for the English word, it's very interesting. I mean, the, the, the root word of the, of, the, of, the, of the term gender has as, as its root a term that shows up in the word generation and gender, genealogy, and generosity. So the term as it's being used today could not be further from its source. Indeed, it perverts the very word that it inhabits, taking, if you will, the core meaning of sexual difference right out of the term. Any, in any event, money, money was working with children who had disorders in sexual development uh, where individuals would be born or children would be born with ambiguous appearing genitalia and could maybe perhaps not be readily identified as male or female. In the face of such cases, uh, money uh, who was, you know, had, had to, as doctors often did, had to make this dramatic decision, you know, what to do here, even surgically, had the, had the sort of, had the philosophical view that a, a so-called gender role, and this is the invention of the term really, um, could be inculcated in, into the child through upbringing after a surgical sex assignment. I put that in quotes. So he's the first one to use the notion of sex assignment uh, following the difficult decision to raise a child with such a disorder as a boy or girl. But he, um, his theory did not limit itself to the rare cases of 
you know, such rare cases. He thought that every child, and, and thus all of us, are psychosexually speaking akin to hermaphrodites at birth, in the sense that each of us is equally available to the impression of a gender role of either kind, given the right environmental influences. So his, his most famous and tragic case was a sort of a perfect test case when he was brought a, a boy, a boy um, who was born to Jewish parents. He was one of uh, a set of twins. He had been maimed during his uh, circumcision and his parents were told to go to John Money and John Money put him to the test, suggested to his parents that he be castrated, raised as a girl, be named Brenda, uh, that they dress him as a girl, use the right pronouns, put, you know, have him play with girls' toys and so on. This boy, this lemur infant, uh, rebelled against this throughout this whole sort of educational project experiment. Um, and things went particularly tragic when he became an adolescent, he, he became suicidal. And it was decided that he should be told, um, you know, what, 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 what had happened. Once he was told, he felt this tremendous relief and renamed himself David because he felt he'd been um, fighting Goliath his whole life. Uh, notwithstanding the, the tragedy of this, this case, that he and his brother went on to commit suicide in their 30s. But John Money boasted of the success of his theory in, in his publications. In any event, what's very clear with John Money uh, and, and others uh, also alongside him is that here gender is clearly an identity entirely unmoored from the actual sex of the child. Here the boy says, I am a girl. The identity in this case is entirely arbitrarily related to one's actual sex. Now, this term is also used uh, in another sort of field of psychology, you know, where we, 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 we hear mention of people having deep-seated feelings, and, and there are, you know, historical cases of people having real, in, in, you know, feelings of incongru incongruity and so on. This discovery uh, was made, the idea of a kind of incongruity between sort of an inner sense of identity, inner sense of self, in, in which someone supposes to, to feel like what he thinks the opposite sex feels like, was called gender identity disorder, then it was promptly changed to gender dysphoria, then incongruence, and now nonconformity. Because now um, there, you know, there's an attempt to sort of distinguish the, the, the idea of incongruity from any notion of a disorder. In any event, here the accidental relation between gender and one's actual sex, you know, the source of it comes from, if you will, deep, deep inside. Now, however, I mean, the last, the last thing that can be said in the sort of history of gender as something other than sex is that um, we've almost entirely lost the language of gender dysphoria. It's pretty much dropped out of, uh, you know, uh, policies which, which justify sex change operations and, and hormonal replacements and all that uh, in favor of the category of self-identification. So you'll, you'll almost hear nothing about gender dysphoria uh, because it's a kind of, uh, a kind of a, a so-called natural argument that people resort to to sort of justify the idea that we could have a gender that's at odds with sex. Would you now say that then if, if gender is, you know, basically who, who you decide to be, I mean, that, that has in, some influence on sex, right? Is now sex would generally be considered more of a biological, physical construct than something that is, I don't know, innate, deeper than something physical? Sure. I mean, this is all part of the sort of modern dualism initiated by such people as Descartes uh, that have been um, derided as the, the ghost in, mach in the machine theory. So 
once you have a gender identity, you now describe sex as something merely biological. And so, you know, it's, it's a kind of just biological substrate upon which I add my, my, my sort of inner identity or my, my core. There's a long history there of that. But in, in any event, I mean, this whole idea of gender, I mean, it, it's either something that's sort of, you know, inculcated into you, you know, John Money, it's something deeply inside you. And now, now the dominant theme is it's, it's something I decide for myself. It's a deed that I perform on myself. So Judith Butler kind of, in a way, is, you know, gives us the final word on what gender, in a certain sense, always was. This decision to create, you know, recreate myself. Well, that language that you just used of it's like a deed or you often hear it referred to as a performance, like you perform a gender, whereas your body is just sort of something that you kind of have. Um, That's right. That's right. And, you know, one of the things I like about some of the things I've, I've read in your work, Dr. McCarthy, is the implications of this for how we think about ourselves. Because when you when you say that, if I say that my identity is all kind of like, it's something that I perform or it's something that I, I it's like I make my identity there's not a sense of receptivity that I also that I'm also a person who belongs to others or that and that I live with and for others. My my identity is not something that I decide for myself. I wonder if you could you draw out some of these implications for thinking of it, it's not even just about gender and sex. In some ways, it's it's about one's very sense of the self of, of what I am. Um, and could you could you say a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, because I am embodied, you know, if, if I throw myself out the window, I throw myself out as well um, to to try to cast off, disregard or replace my body will necessarily invariably affect, you know, uh, my, my identity. And of course, that's the whole point of casting off the body. It, it's to sort of reforge one's identity precisely. in. I mean, I would say that in a nutshell, it's to eradicate from our vision, from our, yeah, from our vision, any prevenient natural order, any givenness. What's particularly grievous about sexual difference is it places us in a very messy, unpredictable, uncontrollable well of web or network of relations. I like to think of it in terms of the past, present, and the future. To be sexual is to have been born. And so to come into the world with an inheritance, and not only a, a inheritance from my family, but, but also a kind of metaphysical inheritance I've been given my being. To be sexual then is also to face, always sort of face another manner of being a human being that is indispensable to me, indispensable for the most important thing that I can do, namely to give life. And then to be potentially a mother or father is to to to... To look at my future quite differently than, than, than we tend to want to as a kind of a road with no obstacles in the way. It's to accept one's future as an adventure as opposed to a, a, a bucket list on the way to the golf course in Florida, so to speak. So to be open to children, of course, is to be open to, well, much beauty and much, but also much surprise and unpredictability. So, I mean, that's all for, for ordinary people, even though these things are hard and difficult, we, we understand the sacrifice involved at each level here. We also see the beauty in it. But, but at the same time, if, if you're weighted down by a, the dominant conception of freedom, these things are kind of 
they kind of they contradict our our dominant sense of what freedom is and and so we have to get out of them we have to disentangle ourselves from these relations this theme of disembodiedness uh you you know we're talking about or this this kind of sense of of um the way that this movement around sex and gender alienates us from our bodies but also you bringing up this point about almost like a desire for control, you know, and not and not willing to kind of accept the adventure or the surprise that comes along with being of having a sexed body. I wonder, I mean, th this question actually, but either of you could answer it if you have a if you'd like to comment on on kind of how our technological culture exacerbates this. And, and I feel a little funny asking this question since I, we're looking at each other through screens um you know there's there's a lot of material here after a year of of lockdowns and that sort of thing about you know how this kind of sense of disembodiedness both disembodied and the desire for control just how much our kind of technological or technocratic culture makes this even worse and, and i have to say one of the reasons i asked this question that one thing that got me thinking about this was a couple of years ago reading about somebody who had thought that they were transgender and she as a desister, she she went back and she accepted herself as a woman. What she in her story of what happened, you know, her parents were totally accepting of her saying that she was transgender. Their only issue was they thought that she was still too young to be doing, you know, undergoing medical procedures. So they were like, they still supported everything. They were like, just wait a little bit. But so then she ended up spending summer, a summer on a farm. Uh, where she didn't have access to the internet really anymore. Like, so she wasn't being able to watch all the YouTube videos and, and all this kind of stuff. And she wasn't just in her room in front of a screen all the time. She's actually working with animals and with the earth. Uh, and she came back and decided, I, I am a female. Uh, but it was still interesting. I thought that she was able to accept her own body after being away from the internet for a while so anyway i wonder if you could comment like do you think that like our this kind of culture our online culture exacerbates these problems i'll let margie handle uh the the bodily dimension of the question because she's already been speaking about that um but i will i'll say this much um i don't think we yet understand what it is doing to us that our access to reality, uh, as well as our relationships with each other, are now almost entirely mediated by the virtual space of the internet uh, and the digital communications revolution. Um, because we are fish inside a fishbowl with that phenomena, uh, and we and we don't yet understand it. I am convinced that neither the speed I am convinced that the the latest phase of the sexual revolution, and if you stop and think about it, the 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 temporal distance, the time between Obergefell uh, creating a constitutional right to same-sex marriage uh, and the triumph of transgender ideology throughout the culture, it's an infinitesimal space of time. Likewise, this is a different subject, but analogously, I'm convinced that our understanding of and our social response to the pandemic uh, would be dramatically different um, if we weren't all prosthetically attached to the internet and spending a, a great proportion of our time staring at the screen. Uh, and so 
it, to that extent, there is undoubtedly uh, an effect that we don't fully understand from our complete immersion um, in this particular dimension of technological culture. One aspect of this that I think we are increasingly seeing and that we, we should rapidly come to an understanding of is that this same immersion has made possible a kind of political action or the, 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 it has made it possible to exert a kind of political force in the culture. And for whatever else the, you know, the, the transgender movement is, it is also a political movement and is essentially political and has been from its very origin. And we need to talk about that dimension mm -hmm. of it at some point. Um, but what this immersion in technological has made possible is the exertion of a political force instantaneously at multiple places around the globe simultaneously. And in fact, I, I would and have argued that this is a, a kind of post-political form of political action in that it completely bypasses you know, traditional challenges for deliberating and deciding about or traditional channels for deliberating and deciding about political question. I mean, the, the idea of 435 representatives gathering under a dome in Washington to sort of talk through and think out and decide about political questions seems almost antiquated in the face of rule by internet. So part of what this movement portends, I think, is a movement toward a kind of post-political politics, to put it sort of tautologically. And uh, there is no doubt that that itself exerts a kind of inward pressure upon our self-understanding, upon our relationship to our own bodies uh, that we do not yet have a full grasp upon. Uh, the contents of which I'm sure Margie would be happy to say more about. Yeah, I, I mean, well, let's see um, what was the question. So uh, the relation between technology and and the, the desire to, uh, what is what is Firestone say, the, the elimination of the sex distinction itself. Uh, we could go even back further. I mean, the sexual revolution as uh, born in the mind of William Reich in the 30s. Um, I mean, it, at that point, it wasn't the elimination of the sex distinction. It was elimination of the connection between sex and, and the possibility of children. I mean, that that wouldn't be thinkable where they're not, you know, contraception on, on hand. So the, the technology makes thinkable something that surely had been a desire before. I'm not saying the desire wasn't there, but it it becomes it becomes more thinkable. And and so also were it not for John Money's experiments conducted in John, at Johns Hopkins on uh, on on little children, um, it would be unthinkable to say what Shulamite Firestone said in the 70s. You know that 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 the ultimate revolution, um, the final apotheosis of, of the revolution, where we will have total equality amongst each other, will be the the, the elimination of the sex distinction itself. So yeah, I mean the technology, um, the, the developments. I mean, why you could ask, well, why are they being developed in the first place? <laughs> They're being developed for the sake of this thing, and then being developed these things become more at least publicly possible in, in people's minds. It's very interesting reading Simone de Beauvoir and then also Money. They were both fascinated by how lower organisms reproduce asexually or hermaphroditically. Indeed, indeed if you read Simone de Beauvoir's uh, chapter on biology, she seems to prefer it because that mode of generating would, of course, release us from each other. They, they, they release us from the kind of entanglement that we have with each other, you know. There, there's, a, there's a project in the making. There's a pro, There's a, there's a project that we need to work on. Let's, let's return to asexual or hermaphroditic or 
reproduction. Uh, and, and one more thing to say on the, on the relation between technology and, and control uh, that Mary asked is I can't help but thinking of uh, the abolition of man by Lewis, where he spoke about, um, on the one hand, we're, we're after control, of course, but, but we're putting ourselves in the hands of, of, of those who will control us, the, what he called the conditioners. And so just think, I mean, very practically here, I want to now be a man. A man wants to be a woman. Um, now I've got to have, I, I want, now I want a child. What do I do about that? I go to the laboratory and I do that uh, to be free. Uh, I'm not going to be controlled by my prevenient natural order. I'm going to be free and have children how I choose. But now I'm producing my child in a laboratory. <laughs> and that child is, is under the worst form of power imaginable. Dr. Hamby, you, you've written about this um, too, and, and I wonder if we could just continue with this line of thought for a little bit about the role that technology and biotechnology and even eugenics played in the run-up to the redefinition of marriage. In, in your article, uh, um, Brave New World, after Obergefell, you talk, you talk about some concerns about where this could be going. What is the role that biotechnology has played in this? Um, Dr. McCarthy's already kind of talked about it a little bit, but where do you see it possibly going? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm happy to continue on the, the vein. Margie has already mentioned some of it, and it, it, it's very important um, because, you know, we as a culture do not comprehend what we have said yes to um, in accepting this. And I would also add it's very important since, since it seems to fall to um, – uh, the Catholic Church and to religious people uh, uh, to defend uh, what's left of the natural order, that uh, what's really at stake here and, and what really is going on here cannot be apprehended um, by you know, so-called bridge-building pastoral approaches that tend to view the entire question at stake here as, as, as a pastoral question about uh, care for you know, LGBTQ people. The sexual revolution and the technological revolution are inseparable. And that to accept uh, and to affirm the terms of the one is necessarily to accept both. And we at least owe it to ourselves and as Marduki suggests to our children uh, to be clear headed and honest about that, right? Now, now, how is that the case? I mean, the way that I've tended to distinguish it that this is true in both a kind of uh, uh, theoretical sense and in a practical sense. I mean, theoretically speaking, the presupposition of uh, these technologies and the presupposition of the original eugenics movement um, that emerged out of the triumph of Darwinism at the end of the 19th, 19th century, proceeded apace through the 1930s uh, and really continued uh, with a change of names, if not necessarily intent, uh, under the present day. The original pre theoretical presupposition behind this is one that Margie's already alluded to, a bifurcation of the human being. Uh, whereby the human body, the merely biological body, as it were, uh, is sort of mechanistically conceived, conceived of as a kind of, of uh, technological artifact, so to speak, although uh, the sophistication of that artifact uh, tends to grow, uh, tends to increase over time. You know, in the, in the 18th century, we imagined ourselves in the image of the clock, and now we imagined ourselves in the image of, of uh, digital information systems. So the theoretical presupposition, this bifurcation between a kind of affective self and a merely biological body, but there's also the practical dimension. Uh, and, and Margie also alluded to this. I mean, it would have been imagine, impossible to imagine so-called marriage equality were it not for our technological conquest of reproductive biology, our, our, our capacity um, 
through assisted reproductive technologies and commercial surrogacy uh, to give children to same-sex couples. And the granting of a constitutional right to same-sex marriage entails within it uh, regarding artificial reproduction as equally normative to, equally archetypal with natural reproduction. And so in effect, it commits the state by implication to a regime of assisted reproductive technologies inside of which there are all kinds of eugenical practices, uh, mm -hmm. pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, selection, uh, in vitro abortion, all the rest of it. Uh, not to mention it opens up the ground uh, for future biotechnical manipulation and experimentation on, on, on human embryos. And this in fact has already been argued and is being argued as a logical amplification of Obergefell by a whole school of, of, of gay and lesbian legal scholarship that argue that, that Obergefell essentially removes any preference uh, for, this, for the natural family and for natural procreation in law. And you get these strange neologisms, this kind of Orwellian newspeak uh, to describe, for instance, you know, the medically infertile and the, and the quote unquote structurally infertile uh, to, make, uh, same, to make the same two things that are very different. Likewise, uh, one could not have imagined that a, that a man might really be a woman if we did not also imagine that it were possible by technological means to transform him into one, either through you know, puberty blocking hormones um, or through surgical sex reassignment. And the condition of inscribing this vision of human nature, this transgendered vision of human nature into law is to make normative and to put the weight of the state behind that science. And so if we are going to say yes to same-sex marriage, and if we are going to say yes to the normativity of transgender identity, then we are by implication, by logical implication of necessity saying yes at the same time to the entire biomedical regime that is necessary to sustain these things. And so we're going to see more and more pressure placed upon hospitals and upon doctors uh, uh, to perform these uh, surgeries. We're going to see less and less legitimate questioning of the ideological corruption of these sciences. We're going to see more and more weight placed behind health insurance programs granting and promoting the use of assisted reproductive technologies, which raise so many more questions than are being asked, both for the children conceived by them and for the kind of society that commits themselves to this. You know, I mentioned before that for whatever else it is, uh, the LGBTQ movement is a political movement, right? For whatever one makes of this notion of, of sexual identity, uh, sexual orientation, all the rest of it, its actual historical development is inseparable from the development of a certain kind of politics. What I would want to emphasize now is that it's not only a political movement, it is a biopolitical movement. It involves the, the state's support for sanction of endorsement of an ever more expansive and aggressive uh, and comprehensive regime of biotechnical manipulation and control uh, that, that has unthought of effects on subsequent generations. And we have to understand that there, I do not see a principle whereby we can say yes to this panoply of rights and this panoply of self-understandings and no to all the law, to all of the technological presuppositions 
and necessary implications that are required to sustain that. I mean, you're talking here about this issue about the role of government, the role of the state, and and just to kind of keep that going a little bit. Um, you know, I, I imagine the person who supports the Equality Act or who's sympathetic to it, you know, they're they're saying, well, this is just a step towards the liberation of individuals who you know want to be treated the same as everyone else or they have they want to have equal rights as everyone else um and, and it's interesting then though that like this kind of defense of a of a certain view of rights it ends up require of individuals then means that the state becomes more and more involved in the lives and the work of various of associations um with the Equality Act, I mean, even on a very practical level, it gets it start it starts to get the state more involved in in the life of life of churches or in other religious groups. And you know, one of the things that I worry about is is even getting involved in the family in ways that were not imaginable before. I mean, you hear there been some stories come out about you know the state um, taking children away from their parents if their parents didn't go along with with this view about about gender and sexuality and so um, now everything you've said up to this point that's what you would expect um as that you would expect this expansion of state power and i wonder if you could just can you say a little bit more about this like why you know how we've gotten to this point a little bit although i mean not the whole history of yeah yeah, yeah. political philosophy but just how is how we've gotten to this where where individual rights and an expansive view of individual rights gets you also to this point where you have an expansive state to enforce those rights yeah well I, I don't know if i can say a little bit <laughs> because there's a lot how much time do you have L let me try I'll, I'll try and be succinct uh just hit my mute button if i if, if i go on too long um i mean the first thing i think that's important to understand going back to the question of being clear about what we're really doing mm -hmm. you know is to recognize that it is a system requirement of our liberal society and our liberal public reason, that we settle questions of truth in the guise of settling contests of rights, right? So what presents itself as you know, the right of LGBTQ people to live according to their identity or conversely, the right of religious people to live according to their convictions are fundamentally proxy arguments for what a human being is. And so we're, what we're really doing in our legal and political debates is arguing over that question by proxy means, right? We have to argue in terms of women's sports uh, or what have you. You know, it's a funny way to, to adjudicate the question of whether men and women are real or not. Mm -hmm. That's really what we're doing. And what the state is doing in throwing its weight behind the sexual revolution and behind this, I will say, ideologically corrupted science is that it is throwing its weight behind a particular vision of human nature that is inherently political and inherently ideological. And it is, it is resolving by political means an inherently philosophical question. And that is itself uh, a, a totalitarian gesture to, to assert political control over the meaning of human nature. That's what we're talking about here. So one could expect certain totalitarian implications to follow from that. Now, you alluded in, in the way you put your question to something else that's also worth pointing out, which is a certain sort of irony in our in our very notion of rights, right? That that a right as a kind of zone of privacy, right, uh, that is to be protected, you know, a right that sort of protects a zone of privacy or protects an identity or or protects a certain possibility of acting this way. 
sort of draws a line between me and my fellow citizens who might infringe upon that right, right? And, and, and who prevents our fellow citizens from infringing upon that right? The state. And so the paradox or the irony of this is, is that you know, every time a right is discovered, uh, it actually increases the power of the state to enforce it. Um, and it insinuates the state in between us as, as you know, the, the entity that protects us from each other. Now, it so there is a great possibility of, of, of abuse and almost a necessity uh, for the abuse of state power built into this totalitarian gesture, both because it asserts political authority over something so fundamental and because of what rights are and how they work and how they actually increase rather than decrease state power. Now, let me say a couple more things in the, in the mode of being succinct and I'll, I'll, I'll get out of this question. Um, what is being decided here is so fundamental, right? I mean, the nature of the human being, the nature of man, woman, mother, father, child, that we cannot radically redefine these in the way that are being currently, that is currently being advanced and proposed without necessarily redefining everything else because, because our entire civilization is built upon this, right? So redefining the very meaning of human nature is going to require a radical ideological uh, uh, transformation of education. Uh, it's going to require transformation of law. It's going to require transformation of, of morality. It's going to require a transformation of economic life and corporate culture. Why? Because we're not just affirming the right of individuals to live as they, as they wish. We're redefining human nature for everyone. You can't re redefine human nature for just one per person. And so our acceptance of this necessarily requires, it requires the reformation of language, something so fundamental. You know, that the means we have for recognizing a world in common now has to be resubjected to ideological reformation. And in fact, we're seeing this already. It's rampant throughout the culture. And the interesting thing about it, and it ties back to the, to the, to the earlier discussion of technology, is that the mechanisms of enforcement, though this movement does necessarily increase state power, the mechanisms of enforcement for all of these transformations are largely extra political, right? They're corporate. Um, and they're, they're you, know, you know, giant tech companies. It's the collective uh, panopticon of the internet. It's schools and, 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 and corporations and, 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 and social media platforms and all of the rest of it. I mean, so we have a, the, the, the interesting thing is, is that this is undoubtedly a totalitarian gesture because it affects the totality of life um, and involves a trans and necessitates a transformation of the totality of life. Uh, and it's a it is a, a totality or a transformation that, that necessarily redounds to the increase of state power. Uh, but it also redounds to the increase of a new kind of power exercised really outside of the state. So we may find ourselves living in a, a form of totalitarianism that is at once political and post-political. And we're seeing the, the kind of mutual collaboration of these two forms of power uh, and new forms of that collaboration almost by the day now. Can I just add something to that or maybe ask Michael something? Um, one, one often finds the language of, you know, in the face of something like the Equality Act, you know, the government is, is, is going to exercise all this control over us. No one's going to tell me what to do. And I find that the language used often in, in opposition to something like the Equality Act is the very same language that gives us, you know, gender ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, uh, you know it's, it's an idea, it's sort of a dominant idea of freedom. No one's going to tell me what to do. 
it just so happens that at this moment, the thing that's not going to tell us what to do is our own human nature. So I, I wonder, I mean, how much of this is also a popular, it's very easy to talk about this as a sort of top-down movement. That would be a very typical way of talking about this. You know, you would, you would talk about the corp, you know, all the NGOs and then government um, entities that are enforcing this through law, et cetera. But to what extent is this, to what extent are, are these powerful entities sort of doing our bidding, the bidding of a populace? I, I wonder if we don't have to reckon with that, that there's a, a just a dominant, um, a dominant mentality about what freedom is that affects even those who would oppose something like the Equality Act. Yeah. We haven't quite understood uh, where this is coming from. It's too easy to think about it as coming from, you know, the halls of Congress or. I mean, I think you raise a really interesting question and, and, you know, I'm not sure that I, that I, you know, fully have the answer to it. And I'd be interested in, in, in more of what you think about it. But, you know, I do think that what we are, are, are seeing, and it goes back to the technological question, you know, the technology has created and enabled new forms of power that can't really be apprehended in the, in the, in our, conventional political categories uh, and that we therefore don't understand. And, you know, I think about, you know, I, I have done work in, in, as you know, in sort of theology and philosophy of science, philosophy of nature, and, and this notion of from, um, from systems theory of a kind of uh, a complex adaptive system uh, that has no controlling center. Right? There's a kind of, of self-organizing property to it that comes from the mutual interplay of, uh, of the component parts. Uh, so that uh, it takes on a life of its own. And of course, there are, are, are places at which to provide inputs into the system that can affect it in this way or that. But, but strictly speaking, it is um, not controlled. And there, there's something about the behavior of our contemporary political life and uh, these movements as facilitated by both this massive economic power and corporate power, but also you know the very media through which that is exercised that that has that quality. I'm fond of of Hannah Arendt's understanding of total, of totalitarian, not as rule by you know rule by one, but rule by nobody. Yeah, uh, there's a sense yeah. in which you know you you input something into the system, you know, and it bounces around and takes off a life of its own. And and the the curious thing about that is then that that nobody is responsible for it, and nobody can be held accountable for it. I mean, who's to be held accountable? for the the life that a viral phenomenon takes on in social media, for example. So to the extent that, you know, rapid onset gender dysphoria uh, is right, right, right. partly induced by our immersion in these in, in these systems, who do, we, who do we hold accountable for that and how do we change it? Well, and Dr. Hamby, you're bringing up a point that I, I kind of wanted to follow up with you on, and uh, actually both of you, uh, you as well, Dr. McCarthy, as people who have studied St. John Paul II far more than I have, but the little that I have uh, studied of him, I mean, he talks about communications. You know, he has very positive things to say about, uh, you know, even way back before he, uh, in his early days of his papacy, positive things to say about how it can be used for the good. So as you're talking, Dr. Hamby, I mean, it's, it can be very disheartening to think about all the implications that the Equality Act uh, would have. And so I'm just wondering if either of you have any thoughts on anything that John Paul II or anyone else in the church, any, anybody speaking about these things would have to say on what we can, that will encourage us and help Catholics on how we can use these 
digital technology and all of these communications tools for good. I mean, I, I see some amazing tools being developed right now. And, you know, everything I've learned about the Equality Act, I've learned from online or from webinars. So we know these, these, these tools can be used for good. And, you know, speaking to your last point, Dr. Hamby, about individual responsibility. Who is responsible for these things? Well, you know, to some degree, we all are. So I'm just wondering if there's any encouragement that you can offer, especially coming from our great uh, Saint John Paul II. When he spoke about language, um, that whenever we speak to each other, we're always rereading the word that has first been spoken in us. So there's there's a kind of primacy. There always has to be a primacy given to the the logos of, of in nature, and a true tool in the ancient sense, of course, would serve that. So so the the problem that Dr. Hanby certainly can address is is the way in which that's been that order has been subverted so that the technology is now is, is is not really serving nature it's subverting it and and making of us an artifact I mean again this is actually going on in laboratories where we produce children we're we're going to the very beginning of nature that is birth itself and su subduing it and making it an artifact so in terms of your question about uh, communications, I mean, you, you, you'd always want to give pr priority to real embodied communication, make that make that primary. You know, in a way, a letter, a letter was an, an old tool, right? Um, a, a letter, uh, but but of course, you, that wouldn't become primary. That would be secondary. The, the the friend to whom you write a letter is is a friend you've already met and and you hope to to see again in person. But we've sort of subverted that order so that our primary way of being together is 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 this, as opposed to it, it's serving something that's more basic, more fundamental. Yeah, I wrote a piece a few years back that drew heavily on on John Paul II about on the 50, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae. And in research, I wish I had it in front of me because there's some some great quotes there, not just from. Um, uh, from Pope John Paul, but all the way from Paul VI through through Pope Francis, and and in researching that paper, I was one of the things that struck me was how consistent a theme, you know, beginning at the Second Vatican Council and all the way through uh, the present pontificate, how central a theme this the, the so-called question concerning technology is, you know, the idea that you know man is threatened by what he creates being the central drama of our time, how in various forms, how central that idea is to uh, the post-conciliar magisterial tradition. And I think for various historical reasons and for various reasons having to do with contemporary, both um, secular and ecclesial politics, we haven't appreciated the extent to which that has been a consistent theme of, of magisterial reflection. And there is a really, really rich world there that I think gives room to sort of um, uh, recast uh, the post-conciliar magisterial tradition and to heal the artificial rift, uh, the, the, the artificial rift that Pope Benedict explicitly rejected between uh, so-called life issues and sexual morality on the one hand and the church's social teaching on the other hand. I mean, why does, yeah. does the latter not before belong to the former? You know, anything that has to do with the human being and the form of his existence is surely social teaching. With that as the sort of foundation for what I want to say, the, the, the practical task that you're asking about that I charge my students with 
uh, is actually a theoretical one. I get asked this all the time, you know, what do we do? Well, perhaps the most important thing that we can do, especially in the face of such powerful forces, is to try and understand more deeply what those forces are, what our situation is, and what the truth is. I forget which of those popes, it may have been Paul VI. Um, it was certainly re-echoed by, by Pope Benedict, who said, you know, the world is in trouble because of a lack of thinking. Uh, and thinking, you know, an, an understanding that is not practical, an understanding that is that is good and true for its own sake, doesn't hold much value in our culture. You know, we want and need a knowledge we can do something with. So understanding uh, doesn't have much value. And yet, you know, part of the problem and part of how we got into our present predicaments is that we have not understood what we are doing, that our power to act has exceeded our capacity to think. And so the, the, the thing, the, the practical task that I would encourage um, is to read and to think and to try to understand as comprehensively and as deeply as possible um, what we are undergoing and what we are, are inadvertently saying yes to. The other thing that I would encourage is to try and understand as deeply and comprehensively as possible is the truth that abides in spite of all that. And that's, I think, is where the, you know, the hope comes in. You know, the, the, the gift of creation, the gift of being, the gift of truth is irrevocable. You know, it is the foundation of and the enduring foundation, the indestructible foundation of all the violence that we would inflict upon it. And it's therefore there for the discovery, you know, if we're willing to turn to it and to contemplate it. The hopeful thing is that creation is better you know, being is better, nature is better than all of our theories about it and than all the violence that we can inflict upon it. And that its goodness and its truth are there to be discovered, you know, if we will have the eyes to see uh, and the ears to hear it. But we have to rediscover the desire for those eyes and ears. Uh, and for many reasons, uh, I think that has been um, muted to some extent in us. And so, you know, my own work in this area, and I'm sure Margie's is, you know, too, is, is not principally about, you know, stopping the Equality Act, though it needs to be stopped, or, you know, opposing Obergefell as a legal or political decision, though it, I think it's wrong in virtually every way. Uh, it's rather, you know, in understanding what we're doing, and not, and not only what we're doing, but perhaps in understanding what we're doing, we might act a bit more wisely. I mean, wisdom still ex exists, even though it's, it's gone into decline. And that, to me, is, is is hopeful. Yeah, Dr. Hamby, I mean, you kind of um, took us to what, what I was thinking would be our, our question to kind of wrap things up. And so I wanted to give um, Dr. McCarthy a chance also to to say something there to kind of to kind of finish this out. You know, we, we always do like to end with something that's something that can at least be somewhat practical. And I think but I think just like you said, stopping the Equality Act obviously is important, but it's more importantly for the long run is that we as Catholics need to think like Catholics or we need to we need to have an understanding, um, have habits of thought that are grounded in reality. And so I think, you know, reading, looking at what, you know, trying to understand where we are, um, it all sounds very good. I wonder, Dr. McCarthy, um, perhaps just as a way to close is like, are there are there some practices, though, that, to kind of habituate us in our thinking um, that you think might that, that can be helpful in any kinds yeah. of practices or activities to help build up better habits of thought? 
Yeah, I like what Michael said. I think I think it would be a good practice to think. I, I, no, let me say, how about a good practice to um, to open our eyes? I like very much this this image that Hannah Arendt used um, when she described modern ideology as the knowledgeable dismissal of the visible. And by visible, she meant the again the sort of actual presentness of reality before us. And and that would mean possibly, yeah, that would mean a lot, practically, I suppose, a lot of things. I mean, living life uh, in an embodied way, getting off Zoom, for example. No, uh, eating dinner, um, dancing, singing together, having festivals, going on processions, Corpus Christi processions, um, living the life of the liturgical year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what, what I find fascinating about um, Christianity in this moment, so living the life of faith, is how much it directs us to the, the natural order. I just think it's a fact, uh, you know, as Chesterton famously said in a, in a quote I love, I, I used in a recent article, that we really are kind of the last custodians of the natural world. And there, there's something about meeting Christ in the flesh that also directs us to the, just to the flesh, just the flesh in general. And if you think about his miracles, you know, he did very few miracles actually in his long life, but, but they tended to return people to the things that were right before their eyes. Think of, for example, the, the miracle of, of restoring to the blind man his sight. What did he do? He didn't make him fly. He allowed him to see what everyone else could see before their very eyes, but perhaps didn't appreciate it anymore because they were so used to seeing it. So I, I like this idea of opening our eyes, you know, thinking and opening our eyes. Um, and I, and I, I suppose, you know, together with, you know, being together in the, in the flesh, there's just some things you can't do online and, and going to mass is one of them. Uh, you can't, you can't have a dinner party online. So at the end of the day, living the faith would be a, a way also back to, um, a rediscovery, you know, that we have, that we have bodies, that we live in time and appreciation for what we see before our very eyes. What you just said, Dr. McCarthy, I, I, the next time we, we have a conversation, I would prefer, in fact, this podcast is, has usually been recorded in person precisely because I don't, I, I prefer not to do these sorts of be on a screen too much. So, so next time we talk, it'll be over coffee or, or drink or something. Yeah. So, um, but I appreciate you very much taking time out to, to talk to us today. Uh, really, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. And very heartening and encouraging towards the end. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.